on the margin, it's possible for some people to evade sanctions using Bitcoin, but it's probably not their first, second, or third choice. <laughs> there are entire shell companies and towers full of lobbyists and accountants in the Cayman Islands and the Bahamas whose sole job is to help rich people not just evade sanctions, but hide their money, tax shelters, like the whole fiat system uh, and its sort of corporate structures that it, that it incentivizes is is really built to help hide money and to pull money out of countries and rat it around in ways that are hard to track. And a public ledger that everyone has a copy of and every transaction on which is broadcast to everyone in the network is a is not necessarily the most um, you know obvious way if you wanted to disguise your your movements of money, right? Uh, people who don't know much about how Bitcoin works think shadow money, invisible behind the scenes. It's like no, it's like I'm announcing to literally everyone in the world that runs a Bitcoin node, I'm making this transaction. Now, you don't necessarily know that it's me unless you've done some other intelligence to connect that public address to my, my identity. But like that transaction on the network is not, not that hard to see. In fact, it's like needs to be obvious to see and built into everyone's block for it to actually happen. Um, and so I think whereas if you could do like one little behind the scenes shell transaction to a Bahamian front company for, uh, you know, a Cayman Islands front company and you've got directors and, you know, sh- you know, it's just like you can, you can, you, you much prefer to use that system. Uh, and our system really is wonderful for sanctions evasion and money laundering uh, uh, as it is. <laughs> you could have said if the world was built on Bitcoin, it'd be very difficult to actually do the scale of money laundering that, that's being done now. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. My guest today is Matthew Pines, fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute. Additionally, he is currently a senior associate at the Cadmus Group, where he serves as a resilience expert skilled at designing and implementing large, complex preparedness and analytical projects, working in conjunction with the Department of Homeland Security and the Science and Technology Directorate Operational Experimentation Program. I have no idea what any of that means, but he's wicked smart, and no, he's not a spy. I asked. Matthew's voice has been a welcome addition to the Bitcoin space with his insight on how Bitcoin might affect war, climate change, as well as our economy. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please enjoy this episode with Matthew Pines. Matthew Pines, thank you so much for joining me on the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Thanks for having me, Mark. So the listeners would have had a brief bio of you in the introduction, but if you don't mind giving us a little bit more uh, detail on your professional background, your training, because I'm still convinced that you may be a spy. Yeah, yeah, by all means. Well, I don't know how I'll convince you otherwise, but uh, uh, I can certainly give you my background and then people can judge uh, whether I'm a plant. Uh, so yeah, so I, uh, I studied uh, physics and philosophy as an undergrad. I went through my high school as a physics nerd, went to college thinking I was going to pursue kind of an academic career uh, in physics. Uh, about halfway through undergrad, I realized academia really wasn't my cup of tea. I didn't really see myself working, you know, professionally uh, in in that field. Uh, but I was really interested in the subject matter. Kind of finished the degree, but kind of started to look uh, in a different direction. Uh, did some internships on, on the Hill, actually in Congress, working for a physicist in Congress, which is a nice bridge from kind of science to policy world. Tried to kind of continue that bridge in grad school, so I went over to London at the London School of Economics and Political Science to do a master's in philosophy and public policy just again, kind of one foot in my old academic world and kind of one foot into like the real world. Came back to the States 
uh, and got a job working for the National Science Foundation, essentially supporting their grant making programs uh, for about two years. It's kind of like this, uh, uh, like like a two year fellowship. Um, and I, there I supported uh, programs that essentially do grants for academics and PhD students in across the entire field of economics, decision risk and management sciences, which essentially is like game theory and like behavioral economics, as well as like the science of organizations. So really thinking about how organizations like, like companies and kind of business school departments do research on uh, kind of those dynamics. That was really interesting, fascinating kind of uh, kind of uh, sort of view of both government, uh, how government works, but also kind of how how these sort of academic disciplines oppose, uh, sort of analyze the real world. Uh, but that ended didn't really know what I wanted to do. Kind of had some college buddies who were kind of working for a small startup management consulting firm in DC that was supporting uh, the government do basically exercises, which are essentially like role-playing games uh, at all different scales. I thought that was kind of cool. So I joined them, not really knowing what I was getting into as a, as a management consultant in the kind of the, the national security and homeland security space. Uh, and sort of have been in that world ever since for about 10 years. And in management consulting, you really are kind of making your own career along the way. And so every three or four years, I kind of fundamentally changed the nature of what I was doing in completely different clients and completely different projects. It was really very interesting. And so I've had occasion to work on a lot of different types of projects uh, from, from many different kind of government clients as well as sort of private sector clients. Generally speaking, the thread that I've taken over that past 10-year uh, kind of consulting career has been focused on preparedness assessment and analysis. So really trying to answer the question uh, at, at all different levels, how prepared are we collectively as a society, as a nation, uh, individual government agencies, individual companies to a range of different bad scenarios. So that could be typical things like hurricanes, you know, power outages, um, all the way up to, you know, like big, large scale disasters, like, um, you know, an improvised nuclear device going off in DC or cyber attacks or biological attacks or pandemics. And so uh, I sort of had occasion to sort of climb the, 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 the wall of all the bad things that can happen in the world. And then I reached kind of a Zen state of just kind of a blissful kind of acceptance that uh, these things just are are the way they are. Uh, but it was really interesting insight into both analyzing that type of question for different uh, clients from a qualitative as well as a quantitative basis. So there's you know certain methodologies that we uh, sort of develop and apply to try to you know put some boundaries around that question, which are really difficult questions. Um, and then also to understand how you can you know, mitigate things, how you can prepare for bad things, how you can improve your robustness as well as, you know, potentially your, your, your anti-fragility uh, responding and improving from those shocks. So it was really, you know, in intellectually interesting, compelling kind of career. Uh, I still work in it. So it's, it's, it still keeps me busy. Um, more recently, I've been also involved in projects that um, link technology. So looking at emerging technology, assessing emerging, uh, emerging technology, and trying to look ahead uh, to understand where technology is going and how that might uh, sort of impact national security. So, uh, you know, that's kind of uh, at least a, a bridge to, to my Bitcoin journey, but that's kind of my professional background. Um, but yeah, I'm not affiliated or, or or being paid by the CIA. So I'll just check that box. <laughs> Thank goodness out of my concerns. <laughs> yes. So now you are, uh, in addition to all that, working for the Bitcoin Policy Institute. What is the, the mission and the goals uh, for the Bitcoin Policy Institute? Yeah, so it's a new think tank, really just got off the ground in the past few months, and really in the past like, month or two, have really kind of started to put some products out there. And, went, and um, uh, it was kind of a, a group of folks that kind of got together, really trying to put out uh, fact-based, kind of analytically informed, kind of citable, uh, both research reports, as well as sort of like one-pagers that can be used to help um, kind of inform the broader policy conversation around some of these topics that seem to come up a lot on, uh, with respect to Bitcoin in particular. And so the objective is really to compile, to, to really bring together folks that have 
really kind of solid credentials and sort of deep research analytical expertise on a range of different issues, whether it's national security, economics, Bitcoin mining, energy, climate, kind of the whole kit and caboodle of you know, hot topic uh, issues that are kind of driving a lot of the policy discussion around Bitcoin in, in, the, in the United States. And so we think there's a, you know, a need to help put out you know, useful and fact-based, analytically rigorous uh, materials that can help drive that conversation in a more productive direction so you don't have, you know, kind of one guy, you know, who works for a central bank and, and manages a website called Digit Economist, whose research, quote unquote, is cited in dozens of articles and, 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 and newspapers and kind of the, you know, lies get halfway around the world before the truth gets its socks uh, put on, right? So we're hoping to kind of provide, um, you know, journalists uh, essentially a, a resource. So if they have questions about Bitcoin mining, questions about Bitcoin and sanctions and national security, they can give us a call. And, you know, we're not um, a Bitcoin mining company. <laughs> we don't have a, you know, a staking interest in talking about Bitcoin mining for our, 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 our share prices. We're just talking about Bitcoin uh, as a technology, Bitcoin as a social phenomenon, as an economic phenomenon, and providing, you know, our, our you know, informed opinion on, on what that means uh, for those topics. And so producing op-eds, producing reports, talking to journalists, uh, just being a resource uh, for the broader kind of policy conversation. We're not a lobbying group. Uh, we're not, you know, actively kind of um, doing like that sort of political engagement um, and sort of lobbying members of Congress or anything like that. We're really about, you know, really as a like, think tank trying to put out kind of good research reports. And there's been a lot of that great material that the Bitcoin community has generated kind of on their own. And so it's often matters just a matter of branding, right? And just positioning, right? Folks have really smart, you know, really good research that folks have done, but it's a matter of, okay, is this going to be a format that, that folks in government, that folks, uh, you know, around the country at different at different levels of government can, can use? Uh, and, and it's sort of speaking in terms that they understand. And so that's part of it is just translating some of the things that we know really sort of deeply and sort of almost uh, intuitively, having been in the Bitcoin world for a while, uh, but it has to be translated to folks that maybe aren't as familiar with those kind of technical details or need to kind of climb that that ladder a bit uh, in terms of their knowledge. So that's what we're hoping to do. Um, we're really just getting started, and it's going to be kind of an exciting period. I think this year is the executive order and other things are going to you know bring kind of the policy conversation uh, in a more formal and rigorous way uh, sort of into, in, you know, into, into these topics. Um, so it's going to be a, kind of, a, I think, a, an opportunity to help help steer in the right direction. And I certainly want to steer the listeners to your most recent piece, a 59-page, fantastic, well-researched uh, piece on Bitcoin and national security that this whole podcast will kind of dovetail on. But it's a must-read if you are at all interested in the topic and certainly want to send to your uh, representatives. With that in mind, actually, how has Capitol Hill responded to the Bitcoin Policy Institute? Well, I think it's just getting out there. I mean, we're so new that I'm not sure, uh, you know, that we've made too much of a solid impression. Although, you know, I hope that the the paper has been shared around. I, I've heard, uh, you know, that it's 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 being shared. Um, I haven't, you know, heard anything formal. Um, but that's kind of the objective is just to kind of get it out there so it can be used. I suspect we're going to, you know, hear potentially more in, in the coming weeks and months as, uh, you know, different agencies in the government have to write these reports that they've been charged by the executive order with generating, uh, as well as Congress uh, is going to be taking a look at a number of these different issues. There's a lot of subcommittees. There's a lot of potential hearings uh, in the future. And so I think there'll be more opportunities to help, you know, provide, um, you know, these types of analytically informed reports and fact sheets and other materials kind of to 
to help uh, help inform those those debates um, and ensure you know they're based in you know what we currently know, what's factual, what's what's actually happening uh, in the network and how it's being used. Uh, you know, trying to at least make sure that at least policy is if there's going to be policy, it should be in well informed policy. Um, and so that's kind of the that's the objective. Um, but again, it remains to be seen exactly how it's going to unfold uh, this year. Is the institute is this all pro bono work for you guys, or is it being privately funded, uh, or donations, or industry, or combination thereof? Yeah, so I think there was initial funding um, just to kind of get it off the ground. Uh, I'm not too involved in the actual fundraising side of it. I'm sort of just a fellow who's kind of helping to produce some of the at least the the the, the writing that I want to write, which is on national security. Um, I think there'll probably be some fundraising pieces uh, in the future. Uh, and I know as a as a 513C, so I, the which is sort of like the tax designation as kind of a as a as a not for profit kind of charitable uh, organization, you have to disclose your funders to the IRS. I'm not fully apprised on all the details exactly how that gets submitted. So um, yeah, there will be an element I think of fundraising uh, and you know the kind of the, the the standard kind of structure of a of a 501C3 where you you know disclose your your donors to the IRS and um, you know that's kind of I think the structure that's that it's being followed by. So yeah, I think we're going to, you know, try to do more. I think we're just getting started. So that could be an opportunity in the future to see how that develops. So your Bitcoin story, when you first came across the technology, how did it map onto your politics and your values at at the time? And did it shift over uh, the past few years? Yeah, it's certainly, it's been a, it's it's been quite an evolution for me, right? So first of all, it didn't really even come up in my mind as anything political. Uh, It was just like, my first encounter with Bitcoin, I think some people have similar reactions. It's it's kind of this weird, shady drug money on the internet. That was kind of my first impressions. And you always have that one friend in your social network who's like the first the first mover on those things. And so I had a friend like that and he was all in. Uh, and, you know, I, he was a good friend, but I wasn't like, okay, I'm going to necessarily follow you uh, down this road right now. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I think it was always there kind of in the back of my mind you know, popped up every once in a while in the news, but it really was not something I spent, uh, you know, the serious amount of time to understand and dig into. Uh, it was really, you know, in 2019 uh, that I started getting more seriously in- interested in it as a, as just like a, a thing, just like, what is this thing? Um, not even as like a political thing, just as like, this hasn't gone away. Um, and then COVID hit and I kind of got distracted by it. <laughs> uh, I was doing a lot, uh, both professionally and personally, kind of uh, as that sort of was emerging in China in January, February, March, and you know a lot of a lot of things were happening. But it really, it was March and April the kind of cumulative social and fiscal and monetary response to COVID that really kind of forced me to zoom out, like much much larger from just a geo economic geopolitical kind of economic history perspective to see like what this was going to mean for you know our society, the global economy. Uh, and that's where I started doing a lot more sort of in-depth research of just like, you know, what are they going to be the second and third order consequences of this COVID pandemic, the response, and what are the, you know, well, what's the new world we're all going to have to be pre- prepared for? And, and that's where I sort of looked at Bitcoin as, as this potential, um, you know, piece of the puzzle for how this, this global system is going to evolve. And I think I went through a similar kind of Michael Saylor journey along the way of treating it as like, hey, okay, I'm going to be interested in this thing, maybe have a position in it just to kind of have skin in the game to like, full conviction, right? Like this thing is uh, where where you need to dedicate, you know, uh, a majority of your cognitive energy to really understand where this is going. Um, so that's kind of the journey I went on. More from like a geopolitical 
like trying to understand where the world's going to evolve and not even from like a political, like social technology. Um, and that, that came later. Uh, and that was because I, I, I voted you know, Democrat progressive uh, my whole life. It's just, you know, part of that's, I think, you, where you grew up, your family, I think determines a lot of that, like your political orientation. Um, and so I never approached Bitcoin. I didn't have any resistance to Bitcoin as like libertarian money in that respect. It was just, this is just a technology that can play a role. And let's examine how that technology can play a role and we can use it, um, you know, to help, um, you know, navigate some, 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 you know, turbulent periods uh, of global history. But yeah, it has been a topic I've gotten more into as I've kind of become quote unquote, a Bitcoiner is to sort of sort of what that, what does that mean? How do you think about the social phenomenon that is a, a, a sort of Bitcoin uh, in the United States around the world? And how does that have sort of political dimensions? Um, and that, I think is a, that's a complicated question, uh, at least from my perspective, you know, I see Bitcoin, one is a, a tool, somewhat of a neutral tool, but, it, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't implicitly constrain certain forms of social and political organization. I think it does, uh, but it doesn't determine that. So it does direct, you know, as a type of money, as a sort of inherently endogenous peer-to-peer money system, you know, premised on individuals transacting with each other, right? And so that is kind of inherently political, at least from a perspective of sort of anti-authoritarian, anti-central command style control. So I think to, to the extent that it's you know, inherently political. It's a political in that sense that it does limit the extent to which you could you could sustain, um, you know, uh, or essentially it's freedom money, right? It's it's sort of anti-authoritarian, but that it's more anti that as opposed to specifically one particular type of political organization. So I think it still leaves room for quite a broad sphere of political experimentation. I think that's for me what excites me the most about it is this idea of decentralization. You know can be sort of conflated with sort of libertarian ideas of deconstruction of a state. There's people who think they can use Bitcoin to kind of support the type of political organization. And I think it can, but I think it's also a tool that can support other types of political experimentation. Because what it does is it allows, you know, individuals and communities to kind of hold their own reserve asset uh, and, and to sort of make uh, economic and social and political decisions and how they organize in ways that maybe weren't um, feasible when you have uh, when you have kind of these legacy structures in place. So I think it opens the aperture for other things. It does constrain certain types of political uh, organizations, um, but I don't think it strictly determines um, you know what society looks like. Um, and so I think that's going to be up to us, right? It's going to be up to kind of how human beings decide to organize, what sorts of political ideologies they they place on top of Bitcoin, and you know the Bitcoin doesn't necessarily um, you know strictly determine those. So. That to me is is still an open question. I think it'd be determined by how Bitcoin evolves to a certain extent. Uh, things that are outside of Bitcoin, right? Just sort of what's the society that adopts Bitcoin? I mean, the societies aren't blank slates. Lots of societies around the world are adopting Bitcoin, uh, uh, and I don't think it's it'd be hubris to try to predict exactly how that is going to evolve in every one of those societies and what the you know you know long term implications are. Um, but yeah, to me, there's no inherent you know rule that says because you adopt Bitcoin, you are a certain type of person or you have, or you have a certain type of political beliefs. Um, it does kind of shift the, the landscape and it changes some of the structural incentives involved for types of political orders. Uh, but I think it makes the, that, that landscape much more interesting um, and potentially um, you know, amenable to different types of experimentation, which is exciting. In your writing and discussions, it's pretty clear that you're focused on Bitcoin. Why are you as opposed to other blockchains? Uh, I think Pete Rizzo has written a really good point on this. And 
he sort of put into words what I had sort of at least internally felt, but I wasn't able to articulate, um, which is it's really a matter of kind of uh, governance, respect for your users, and in a sense of what rights do you have in that network? So I don't even think that, you know, there's like the typical refrain that uh, these other coins, so to speak, are kind of frivolous, more speculative gambling. And that's true. Or you can look at like maybe a particular protocol and you can say it has Ponzi-like characteristics and it's exploitative. Or the, the founders have kind of a pre-mine. You know, all those things are, I think, legitimate criticisms, but I think they're, they're symptomatics of kind of a deeper kind of philosophical approach to these systems as, you know, social technical systems, right? Which in, sort of imply a certain commitment to uh, a political ethos, which is, does a user have a right, right? Do you have a, do you have a, do you have a voice or a vote or an exit from that system? Uh, and, and how does that structure? And, and in Bitcoin, it's sort of this um, kind of, you know, people say, yeah, sort of anarchism, but it's more like pure anarchism in the sense that it's um, kind of rough consensus, Every user can decide what version of the protocol to run. Um, and uh, there's no uh, kind of, you know, a cabal of kind of uh, special uh, elites that are designated kind of unique rights that no one else in the network uh, uh, has. And so for me, looking at Bitcoin, if it's going to be this sort of foundational money or foundational asset, it really has to have those types of, you would call it egalitarian user rights. And that's, I think, the part of Epic Coin that, that attracts me the most. It makes it more complicated, right? Because there's no constitution per se. You know, people are used to having formal governance structures and rules where you have defined you know, articles in a, in, a, in a constitution. You have a charter for a certain organization. You have an organizational hierarchy. You have a CEO. Human beings, especially in the modern era, like we're used, like all the, all the organizations, all the kind of social groups that we participate in usually have that type of kind of codified structure and codified hierarchy or sort of um, authoritative uh, set of rules. And all that we have is the protocol, which tells you how Bitcoin runs, but it's the sort of social consensus around the fact that those are the protocol, that those are the protocol rules that everyone, you know, individually gets to choose what, you know, how they run. Uh, And it's a network of incentives that the sort of guide individual decisions in that respect. And so, that's really fascinating to me. I think it's unique to Bitcoin, not just because it was the first, but because it has sustained that that sort of ethos um, of kind of user rights, individual rights. Um, and I think that doesn't that doesn't really exist in any of these other uh, tokens or quote unquote projects. I have to say those those can't have value. I mean, lots of lots of projects have value. Uh, that whether they'll endure, whether they'll play this type of foundational role in the future, uh, is is another question. But for me, Bitcoin is um, is unique and uniquely valuable in that respect. So let's get into the meat of our conversation here, which uh, focuses on your paper. And the breadth of our conversation is going to extend to three main topics that you summarize as following. Bitcoin can support national economic strength by fostering domestic energy innovation, help to counter China's economic ambitions, and stimulate innovation and capital growth at home. So let's break down each one of those points, starting with uh, economic growth. And so in my opinion, in order to understand how Bitcoin can help stimulate domestic economic growth, we must first understand how we got to our current situation. And I speak for my younger self, and I suspect many Americans who likely on a surface level understand that many jobs were sent to China, but we don't or didn't fully grasp the significance of this. And you best acknowledge this predicament with the following statement. We have thus traded ownership of our hard productive assets to China in exchange for consumable perishable goods. 
So Matthew, when you are at the dinner table for Thanksgiving, how do you explain the situation and the challenges with regard to China that we are faced at this time as it relates specifically to our economic situation? Yes, I'll, I'll try to keep this somewhat simple. I don't want to you know, go through all the historical kind of lessons, but I think the, the, the key kind of structural, strategic points to understand that sort of are relevant to think about what's the state of American security and American status in the world. How is the world system going to evolve? You have to sort of look back at you know, what are the key underpinnings of that national strength? How did we get to the position we're at today? Uh, why could it be somewhat vulnerable? And, and, you know, what would that look like in the future? So I think it really goes back to World War II. I mean, it goes back further than that, certainly. Um, certainly relevant historical episodes before then. But really, World War II was kind of the signature event that remade the global system that we still live in. So that global system that was created coming out of World War II is, for all intents and purposes, the global system that still exists today in terms of the, the multinational institutions like the UN, the IMF, the World Bank, kind of the, the basic lines on the map, right? Uh, there's been, you know, border conflicts here and there, but for all types of purposes, most of the kind of, uh, you know, major powers haven't really, um, you know, had a major war to fight over borders since World War II. So essentially the world system, as we currently live it, came out of World War II. And the world system as sort of geopolitical construct really rode on an economic system coming over to, which was premised on the, the U.S. economy being the most powerful economy in the world. The rest of the world was basically destroyed. Um, we were the basically the a continental uh, nation that had all of its natural resources, um, you know, the bounty of, 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 our, of, our, of our country, you know, massive uh, kind of industrial capacity coming over to we were you know, able to provide you know, credit to pretty much you know, everyone, everyone in the world, especially the Marshall Plan. So we were kind of riding high uh, coming out of World War II. And so we made a system, economic system, that you know, privileged us uh, and that allowed us to kind of dictate the rules of, of the road. Um, and that system wasn't perfect by any means and it had sort of inherent flaws that sort of emerged over the coming decades. But, but really, that's kind of where, where we started kind of in, in the current, current order. Um, the key point about that system coming over, too, was called the Bretton Woods system, was that you still had gold as the foundation of the world economic monetary system. So everyone essentially recognized gold as kind of being the, 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 the key reserve asset. So that, that asset that every sovereign entity would sort of need to hold uh, to sort of establish credibility in their, in their currency and then to exchange uh, in the global market through trade. Uh, and so the U.S. government had by far the world's largest gold reserves uh, coming over to, both because of um, people sending it over to us to keep it safe, um, but also just because we were the most economically powerful, uh, we could sort of accumulate gold. Uh, and so that really pr privileged the dollar uh, pegged to gold as like the global reserve currency, uh, with all other currencies essentially pegged uh, to, to the U.S. Uh, dollar. That system worked until the 60s when it started to break down for a lot of reasons that we can go into. But essentially, we started doing wars. We started spending a lot of money. Um, and, you know, that essentially started to uh, uh, force gold out of the country. People could redeem their, their dollars for gold uh, and uh, started to draw down our gold reserves. That accelerated uh, into the end of the 60s, into the early 70s, when it looked like we were going to, uh, th those gold claims uh, were starting to outstrip our capacity to redeem and we had to, you know, abruptly shift. That was the Nixon shock in 1971, where basically said, nope, we're not going to redeem those dollar claims for gold anymore. We're going to a completely free-floating fiat currency standard, where essentially faith and trust in U.S. credit is what's going to underpin the value of the dollar. And still, you know, faith and trust in U.S. being a very powerful country, still in the Cold War, so you still had kind of this division between, uh, uh, you know, the kind of the East and the West. 
kind of had two options if you were another country. It was like go with go with the U.S., uh, accept their debt, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, and and use the dollar, or you're in the you're in the Soviet system. Uh, and so it was kind of a kind of a, a bipolar uh, kind of world order. Um, and that that pivoted. You know, we had to find a sort of a, a new anchor for the dollar, and we started in 1973, 1974 anchoring the dollar essentially to the oil trade and made a deal with the Saudis when the U S treasury secretary, uh, Simon went over there, met, met in Jeddah, uh, with the Saudi family and said, we will protect you, preserve your regime indefinitely, sell you arms and weapons. As long as you sell your oil in dollars and buy our weapons, uh, with those dollars, as well as buy us debt with those dollars. And so set up basically the first kind of dollar recycling machine where, we now get to buy a hard asset like oil with printed money, dollars, which is a great exorbitant privilege, as it, as, as it was called by the French at the time. Um, and that system, you know, essentially has been the system that we've run through, through ever since with some uh, significant, you know, uh, evolution along the way. And really that petrodollar system really should be called the petro treasury system, because in a sense, the dollar is just a medium of exchange, just a unit of account. It's just a you know uh, a symbol you put next to a digital ledger entry in a bank, right? Uh, but the asset that actually underpins the system is U.S. Treasury securities, which is a security. It's a tradable instrument. It's a promise to pay from the U.S. government with different maturities, different coupons and interest rates. And it's traded both in public and private markets. And that is the system that, the, that that's, the, that's the asset that the system's built upon are treasuries. And so what... The Saudis are buying um, with the dollars they accumulate from running uh, from from selling the oil are treasuries, and that was sort of the the pattern that you'll see us uh, really uh, expand and evolve over the course of the 20th century was finding new buyers of U.S. treasuries and essentially get them into this recycling system, uh, and 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 if that happened, for example, in Japan, uh, and, you know, the Japan sort of bubble uh, was really this kind of system. Uh, although it kind of got out of whack because it wasn't just them buying treasuries, it was them buying everything that they could <laughs> with those dollars. Uh, you know, uh, Manhattan real estate, our equity market, and so um, it created uh, created those problems that uh, that you that you find when you have kind of this um, you know too much too much money chasing after too few goods, and so you got to this bubble. That's that's all to sort of jump to what happened with China. So as we sort of uh, you know approached the the 1990s. The Soviet Union fell, and we were kind of the global hyperpower. There was really no major um, competitor to us in the world system, um, but we still had kind of this Bretton Woods or the sort of post-1971 dollar system in place, and we thought, oh, we'll just turbocharge it, essentially. Uh, and that really wreaked havoc around the world. And so you had uh, uh, crises in Latin America, the Asian financial crisis, sort of the, 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 uh, the, the Russian default uh, and so emerging markets were basically crushed by a really strong dollar. Um, and we were able to, um, you know, essentially use that to rebalance the budget. We were able to focus on kind of domestic priorities. We sort of turned our back uh, from the world to a certain extent. Um, we didn't think we, we really had to. I mean, China was still relatively weak. We thought we could convert them to the liberal order. Russia was destroyed. They were no longer a serious competitor on the world uh, stage. You know, Europe was still just barely getting their act together, try to unify and create kind of a concept for an EU and a Euro. Things were great. And we run into that system. Uh, we've approached the, the idea that we could bring China into that system essentially as, you know, another, you know, kind of a, a supporting part of the dollar world order. And in 2001, we made them, uh, we brought them into the World Trade Organization. 
which you know really you know structurally eliminated a lot of the barriers to sort of for U.S. companies, other companies sort of go into China and create you know these different um, kind of investments. Uh, we also made them uh, we gave the most favored nation status, which is sort of a special status um, that also kind of prioritized uh, and, and, and facilitated trade. This all came after NAFTA, kind of. Uh, so the net effect, really, what this meant is that now China, which had a lot of people who could work for very cheap um, salaries, uh, U.S. companies could go over there and build their factories. And so the sort of wave of NAFTA, which deindustrialized the U.S. and moved factories to Mexico, the, now those factories went from Mexico to China uh, and essentially brought brought down um, uh, labor costs. But what that also meant now is that China went all in on that. <laughs> they were like, this is the key to raise our raise our country up. Um, and they did that massively successfully. They brought more people out of poverty than any country in history. All these people from the countryside went to the went to the cities, got jobs in factories, kind of started to climb the uh, sort of the, the you know the wealth ladder. Um, and that was really great for China. But what it had uh, as, a, as an ancillary impact is essentially U.S. Uh, companies were able to sort of arbitrage the labor difference. Um, and importantly, what this meant for the global system is now uh, China and the U.S. were now kind of locked in this sort of uh, super dollar recycling. And from like 2001 to 2008 and really 2013, that period was a period of sort of hyper growth of U.S. consumers buying goods from China, giving them dollars, and now China accumulates all these dollars. What do they do with them? Well, it was sort of the the you know the old deal that we had with uh, with the Saudis that we've played many different versions of. They take those dollars, they recycle them back into U.S. Treasuries, and so we get a buyer of our debt. Uh, so we're able to both buy cheap goods. With dollars, and then have that country that accepts those dollars take those back and and and, and then fund our deficits and allow us to do all the things that we did in the in the two thousands, which was foreign wars, tax cuts, and this idea of deficits don't matter kind of came from that because we had kind of this um, subsidy from the for, from the Chinese dollar recycling, um, and that system really broke down in two thousand thirteen, where. Uh, China decided that they were no longer going to be a net buyer of U.S. Treasuries. So their, their holdings of U.S. Treasuries peaked in 2013. Uh, and what they did instead with those dollars that they accumulate from us running trade deficits with them, buying all, buying all the goods they produce, is instead they took those dollars and they embarked on a massive, still ongoing kind of strategic initiative they called the Belt and Road Initiative, which is basically them taking those dollars and lending them out to countries around the world for infrastructure projects, building ports, rail systems, airports, uh, you know, vanity projects for for third world dictators, um, investing in good infrastructure, bringing in Chinese companies to build it, often Chinese labor at the same time, uh, and essentially expanding their sphere of economic and political influence by taking dollars they acquire from our trade and relending them to the world. Um, and that's been a system they really, you know, perfected over the past 10 years uh, to bring more and more countries into sort of acquire strategic interest and kind of critical assets. So, they want to be able to secure their trade route, so they need more ports. They need to make sure that they have relations with all those um, countries, both in Eurasia and around the Indian Ocean into the Middle East. And so you can go look at any country and basically count you know, how many billions of dollars they've received in BRI funding and sort of correlate to what you think their position is going to be on, on China uh, in sort of the geopolitical um, kind of context. And so that brings us to where we are today. I, mean, I won't go through the, the whole litany of all the recent events, but the, the larger context is... China's trying to become a peer power. Uh, they don't necessarily want the yuan to replace the dollar as a global reserve currency, but they want to leverage the dollar system. And they have been leveraging the dollar system for the past 
really 10, 15 years in order to grow their own economy and to uh, and to expand their political and military influence uh, around the world and buy up hard assets. And so essentially we're, we're forced to, in order to keep the U.S. economy running the way we're, we have been running it, uh, keep the world supply with dollars, which means we need to run deficits, which we, we need to buy more goods than we produce to sell. Uh, and that means that we don't have much manufacturing, right? We have to we have to have more like a financialized economy. We have to, uh, you know, place more things on credit and debt uh, in order to finance, um, you know, continued consumption. And so that that system can work, but it's vulnerable to acute recessions like 2008. Uh, it's very vulnerable to, to to shocks, and it requires you know monetary authorities to step in and bail things out and print more money in order to keep the system from collapse. And so. That's where we've been uh, going, and COVID kind of pressed the accelerator button uh, and kind of broke kind of the sort of the, the stability of the system. And now we're kind of in this period where it's not quite sure how it's going to evolve or how it's going to shift, but it certainly is 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 uh, is, is fracturing in different ways. Um, the last point I'll say on the China kind of piece here is sort of where the story is going to go next is the sphere of influence that they built up through BRI. It's still dollar-based. It's still, you know, locking these countries into kind of a trade and political uh, sphere of influence, but it's still dollar-based loans. Now, ultimately, China wants to be able to print yuan to get hard assets, right? That's a great deal, right? If you can just print money and get food or oil or other uh, other kind of key commodity inputs, then you can really, um, like, that's a great that's a great deal, right? <laughs> you don't actually have to produce anything. Um, it does have these long-term structural costs that we ran into called the Triffin Dilemma, right? Which is that you have to essentially deindustrialize in order to, 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 to have that uh, exorbitant uh, privilege, which turns into an, an exorbitant burden over time. Uh, but with China, their, their long-term game is to eventually lock those BRI countries into yuan-denominated trade. And, you know, in digital world, they want to use a digital form of, of yuan to enable that. And so they've been rolling out progressively, very deliberatively, a digital yuan uh, that is very centralized, central bank digital currency uh, to you know gradually shift some of those nations into their their orbit. Now they got to do it kind of gradually because uh, the economic system in China isn't switching entirely over to a consumption based model. So the U.S. government, U.S. economy is all about buying things and consuming. Uh, like our 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 we call our citizens consumers, right? <laughs> China doesn't. China is growing that consumer class. But it hasn't hasn't quite uh, you know transitioned entirely from like a production industrial uh, based economy to a kind of a consumption based economy. That's what they that's what they're trying to go. And right now they're in that transition. Uh, and so the digital uh, yuan is kind of a key part of the both the domestic kind of apparatus of social control to try to you know manage their kind of state capitalist model as well as to export um, kind of their influence and to lock in these these countries into kind of a uh, authoritarian in a box. Currency surveillance systems and Chinese governance model along the BRI. So that's the strategic challenge that the U.S. is facing now. You know, Russia's in the news a lot, but Russia, kind of on a geostrategic level, is not nearly as important as China when it comes to kind of like the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, and so China plays a, you know, uh, an outsized role in how the U.S. should think about its national security interests. And the digital yuan is, I think, a key part of them. Um, you know, the, the, the competitive landscape we're going to have to navigate. So that was a lot to sort of zoom from World War II to today. There's a lot I, I missed, but that's kind of the, that's kind of the cliff notes version of, of the geopolitical challenge, uh, especially centered around China right now. 
Well, if your family doesn't want you at Thanksgiving this year, you're certainly welcome to come to mine because that was that was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People people quickly go go back for dessert and you know leave me you know in in the living room just talking to the to talking to the dog. <laughs> so one of the points that I want to uh, also touch on or, or emphasize is is the idea that it wasn't Bitcoin that has been undermining uh, the global reserve status of uh, U.S. Treasury. It's it's been brewing since, as you said. Uh, 2013. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, China and Russia, as you said in the paper, have been utilizing treasuries less and less since 2013. Do you have any other uh, thoughts or input on on the fact that uh, no, it is not Bitcoin that is undermining the dollar reserve status? Yeah, I mean, I think that comes from first people think Bitcoin is a currency principally in, in its main use case today. People call it a cryptocurrency. And so I think the casual dismissal of Bitcoin, well, it's either just frivolous. It's like obviously not a currency. You're not using it for coffee unless you, you know, you're in El Salvador. But like that's kind of the the the, the first dismissal take. And then of course the you know Bitcoin can't uh, so you know re- replace the dollar. It's just not even not even uh, close in, in, into its um, use case. But then people also say, well, if it ever got to that level, well then it would be a threat to the dollar. And I think that's also where people kind of uh, need to make an important distinction between the global reserve currency status of the U.S. dollar versus the global reserve asset status of the U.S. Treasury market. And those are really tightly linked. And so it's often easy to just mistake and conflate the two as the same thing. Um, but really, they're fundamentally different things. And Bitcoin, to a certain extent, uh, is not a threat to either of them right now. Uh, and in a certain extent, in the near term, could actually be supportive of both. In the long term, I could see Bitcoin replacing the U.S. Treasury as a reserve asset. But that's going to be, I think, the key geopolitical and economic question over the next five, 10 years is how that transition happens, how we navigate that. But at the moment, really, the system that we have, a dollar is, again, a unit of account and medium of exchange is what you use to pay things with. Very rarely do you use a treasury security to pay for something. Like there's certain rare instances where sometimes you're doing a big, you know, you know, mergers and acquisition deal and you've got a bunch of T-bills. The person might just accept the T-bills as payment. Um but that's usually rare, uh, and it's not really suited as a medium of exchange. Um, usually, you liquidate the treasury securities for cash deposits, you know, in your account. Uh, you get, which would come from the banking system or come from the central bank, and that's what you use as medium of exchange. But that's so that's an important understanding, kind of the plumbing. And I would say like, it sounds kind of people's eyes glaze over, but if you think about Bitcoin as as a as a new monetary system that's sort of emerging inside the existing monetary system. It's really important to understand kind of the details and the plumbing of the current monetary system to know like how this new system, which isn't going to evolve in a vacuum, right? It's going to evolve inside this existing system to sort of understand how it's going to evolve inside that existing system. Where might it break part of that existing system? Where might it merge with that existing system? Where might it just route around it? And I think sometimes people think it's just the dollar, it's just the treasury, but really understanding the, like the weeds and it's like really deep kind of technocratic like alphabet soup of of terms associated with the different federal uh, reserve facilities and how like the primary dealers function. People sometimes don't care about this stuff. I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to that sort of stuff. But it's really important to understand the treasury security is the foundational asset for the whole global dollar system. You know, tens if not hundreds of trillions of dollars of value is sort of all this massive pyramid kind of anchored on, on the treasury security at the bottom. That's like, you know, that's the foundational asset upon which everything else is built. Um, and it's considered that because it's won back by the U.S. government. Uh, and we're supposedly the strongest country in the world. 
because that has sort of, you know, self-perpetuating uh, uh, strength that it's quote unquote the most deep and liquid market. And with that matters a lot if you are going to use it as a reserve asset, because it needs to be something you can easily trade in and out of without affecting the price. So there's always going to be a buyer and a seller when you when you want to engage in the market. And when you have you know a really deep and liquid market, and people trust their counterparties, it can play that role in supporting you know these massive uh, uh, sort of chains of derivatives and leverage and kind of the financial system that exists. Um, as we've seen in recent events, when there's questions placed on the actual safe and liquidity of that market, like the Fed, like 10 alarm fire goes off in their mind because that is like, that is that is the key threat to the whole system is if the treasury market becomes disorderly. And so the things they did in March 2020, a lot of things they did kind of with this alphabet soup was specifically to try to prevent or to mitigate disorderliness in the treasury market. Um, and so the dollar, I mean, even the, even the chair uh, of, the, of the Federal Reserve, Powell was in, in testimony, he was asked about, you know, the status of the of the dollar as a global reserve. And he said, you know, there have been multiple reserve currency systems in the past. Um, and there are multiple reserve currencies. It's just we are the most uh, dominant reserve currency. So that like the euro has its own trading block. They're a reserve currency in the euro. Uh, China's trying to make the yuan kind of like a euro for their BRI Asian sphere of influence. And so you could see it's not this binary either or. It's more of a sort of do you become less dominant relative to other reserve currencies in terms of denominating trade. And that's certainly an important aspect of the dollar's role, but it's like less important than the role of the treasury because the, 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 certainly the Chinese debt is not uh, anywhere close to being used as that sort of foundational reserve asset. I don't think it's ever going to be treated like that. Um, if you see the treasury system break, what you're going to see is not a transition to a new a new country's sovereign debt at the foundation, you're going to see a shift away from sovereign debt at the foundation. And that's, you know, uh, in the in Zoltan uh, sort of Posars, who's a, you know, a Credit Suisse kind of monetary analyst, one of the most respected uh, on Wall Street, calls kind of between inside and outside money. You know, inside money is basically money that has a, a liability attached to it. It's someone else's debt. And that's basically most money in the system. Your bank deposits are liabilities. The bank's reserves are liabilities of the Fed. Um, all the different sort of trading and derivatives and leverage and rehypothecation that's like the trillions of dollars in the global financial system is just bank counterparties to other institutional counterparties. They're all just uh, someone else's liability. And that works when you have a system, a globalized system, there's trust and, and central banks and national governments are willing to like backstop that trust and bail, bail things out or prevent defaults from, from, from happening, um, which sort of embeds you know, moral hazard in that whole system. But it's very fragile. Um, and so outside money is what people go to when they have uh, when, when, when their trust in inside money starts to fr- uh, you know, starts to be uh, kind of questioned. And outside money is really some things that don't have liabilities, that don't have uh, counterparty risk. And you know, those things could be like commodities themselves, like you just have enough hard stuff that someone will want, essentially like, like a barter like asset, right? Gold is obviously the most historically demanded form of outside money. It's sort of the go-to for central banks. And Bitcoin, I think, is this emerging new form of, of, of an outside money that doesn't have counterparty risk, um, uh, but is also uh, a digital asset. So I think that's where the interesting aspects of Bitcoin in this new emerging monetary order could potentially um, play a role, is that it's 
has that commodity-like outside moneyness, but it also has the fiat transportability and uh, kind of settlement ease that fiat has. And I think people often, even those sophisticated analysts on Wall Street, I think the digital gold narrative has, has, I think, been too successful in the sense that they just think of it as just a digital gold, just this like commodity-like synthetic asset that functions like gold with a high beta to the, to the stock market because it's you know, really volatile, but it's counterparty free. That's sort of its feature. What they really don't, I think, recognize is the principal pathologies of gold, the fact that it has to be centralized. It's really difficult to use it for settlement because you got to like have someone physically transport it like on a ship with like armed, you know, <laughs> armed, uh, armed battleships um, like they did for most of the 20th century. Um, that's really expensive, inconvenient. And oftentimes you just put it into a vault and you just like change the label on the outside of the vault whose, whose gold it is. Um, but again, doesn't make it outside money then as Central Bank of, of Russia has just found out, right? It's not outside money if it's just putting like a different label on who owns it in a central vault. And so if people actually wanted to use gold as outside money, they would quickly run into these problems, which is you kind of put it onto a ship if you want to like have final settlements. And I think the people are still waking up to the fact that Bitcoin, if you monetize it to the level of gold, it's not that far away, you know, five, 10x from here gets you to about the monetary premium associated with gold's total market value. You can have the same, you know, outside moneyness associated with gold, but without um, all those sort of settlement difficulties. Um, so that's kind of the, that's like the, I think the next phase of people, how to think about Bitcoin in kind of the traditional world, but it's probably going to take some time before they get there. So touching a little bit more on gold before we uh, circle back on, on Bitcoin, obviously we have seen uh, the ability to freeze gold reserves here just recently with Russia, and obviously there's historical precedence with France. Do you think there's a comparison there with regard to blocking uh, Bitcoin addresses from specific sovereigns? Yes. So this is certainly a topic, it's very much because it's both a technical question as well as a political question. Like the technical question is, can uh, anyone like identify an address, a public address, and instruct exchanges to not transact with that public address? And that the answer to that sort of question right now is yes. Like, yes, you can identify a public address and tell, you know, regulated exchanges, you cannot interact with this address. And that's that's what happens. You see that, you just saw that, you see that all the time. Major exchanges have extensive KYC, anti-money laundering compliance shops whose sole job is to basically review the OFAC blacklist, essentially, and say, all right, entities associated with these addresses, we can't touch. And their job is to ensure compliance uh, in their systems. And so, like, basic technical answer is yes, like, there is censorship uh, to the extent that if you need to use those 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 exchanges in those jurisdictions, you won't be able to. So it's not like an either or a question in terms of government censorship of the network. Uh, the question is how all encompassing, how restrictive is it to who, in what circumstances, in what jurisdictions? And I think that's like where the boundary line will, will move and can be influenced, right? And I think so it's not like an either or question. That's like the technical question is right now, Yes, you can designate a public address and regulated exchanges can be prevented from using that address. There's a question in the future whether changes to the Bitcoin protocol, like Taproot and other future you know, BIPs, could make that very difficult. Um, I'm not as technically sophisticated to know exactly those future BIPs, uh, how 
you know, what the sort of tit for tat game would be between, you know, Bitcoin developers and kind of chain analysis companies and whether there's, you know, uh, you know, um, what the what the end result of all that will be. Uh, so kind of hard to predict. Um, but right now, it's certainly a mix between the technical question, which in most jurisdictions is just yes, the exchanges, if you want to take your Bitcoin off that exchange and you're on that blacklist, you won't be able to. Um, you can find another exchange depending on, you know, who you are and how sophisticated you are and the liquidity that you need um, that may or may not be feasible. Um, but that's kind of the that's kind of the, the the current state of affairs. But I think it's changing rapidly. So the answer to that question could change uh, in different directions. The other question is, I think a lot more fraught and much more speculative is like long term risks to kind of government uh, meddling, <laughs> right, or government sponsored meddling with the Bitcoin network uh, in in sort of you know its regulatory capacity. Um, it's going to be more like Bitcoin mining. I think Bitcoin mining is the most kind of politically exposed part of the network because it's the part of the network that, um, while they can pack up and leave, the biggest miners, the ones that have most returns to scale, are signing 10, 20, 30-year power contracts in physical locations with like hookups to infrastructure that's in a politically and highly regulated industry, right? like energy, um, uh, electricity utilities. And so... That goes both ways. It both means that Bitcoin mining will become a very important political force at both the local and national level, and they will be really good advocates for Bitcoin network. Essentially, you know, we're bringing jobs, economic development here. Our interests are tied to your interests. And so, and I think net-net, the, the influence of that is going to be very positive for Bitcoin. I think it's worth considering kind of, you know, all scenarios. I think Bitcoiners should be, you know, Always, always be humble and also be, be, be paranoid, right? Like never be too confident because, you know, when you're too confident, you miss things. And I think it's always good to keep an eye out for, uh, you know, risks. Um, there may not be existential risks, but they could be they could be risks. And I think one of the risks is, you know, minor concentration, right? Because uh, if you have, you know, a few miners that uh, for whatever reason, right? I don't think this is initially inevitable, but you could imagine scenarios where, uh, you know, there's enough miners um, that can collude uh, to to censor transactions at the behest of the government. Now, that would precipitate a major kind of, uh, you know, kind of different version of the user-activated soft fork style, you know, block size wars, a, sort of a different dynamic. I don't think, you know, it's worth, you could do the game theory and try to figure it out. Um, but I think that is a, that's a possible scenario. And I'm not sure how likely it is. I sort of think in probabilities, uh, it's certainly not impossible to see that happen and so I think it's you know something to think about um, whether that would uh, destroy the network. Uh, no, um, but you know I think people need to think in less in terms of binaries and more in terms of like degrees of freedom, right? And I think we want to try to maximize the degrees of freedom and you know anticipate potential future risks, understand how to mitigate them, and you know think about you know where uh, you know where those could be coming from down the line. I don't think it's a risk anytime soon, so it's a little bit more speculative. Um, but if we're thinking Bitcoin is going to be money for the world, if we're thinking that it's going to be used in every country by every government, uh, you know, we haven't seen that, right? And so in, inevitably, we're speculating about a future circumstance that we don't have any data for, right? We have no historical evidence. This is an entirely novel thing we're witnessing, the sort of monetization of a new asset. Uh, and it's happening in a relatively short period of time. So I think it would be hubris to, you know, understand that it's just going to happen entirely smoothly with no no risks or, un or, or unanticipated effects. And so the, the more we can think about them proactively, understand the corner cases, um, you know, and try to assess them probabilistically, I think is, is, is important. So that's how I think about it. And I think 
you know, that's part of, you know, what I think we're trying to do at Bitcoin Policy Institute is just try to think about those things, both, you know, now, but also into the, into the far future. Because uh, I think, you know, if you can shape perceptions, if you can shape kind of, uh, you know, the mental models that people use, uh, you know, you can, you can affect the relative likelihood of those, of those different scenarios, potentially. And we'll get a little bit more granular on those dynamics here in a bit, but let's circle back to finish out on the economic side. Mm -hmm. uh, we've discussed how we've arrived at this economic predicament that we are currently faced with and touched on how Bitcoin has uh, factored into it. But you have described Bitcoin simply as an asymmetric advantage for the United States. So why do you see it as this asymmetric advantage as compared to other, uh, say, treasuries or gold or something like a bank or? Yes. Uh, and so this is really getting back to the point of this post Bretton Woods, post 71 system uh, is, is not, is not uh, uh, going to be around forever, right? I, whether it ends this year or in 10 years, I don't know, right? Certainly it could be, it, it seems to be showing some, some signs of stress, um, which places new, new urgency on thinking about what a new system would look like and how we could take advantage of existing tools like Bitcoin to steer a path through this phase transition to a new system in a way that uh, at least mitigates, uh, if not gives us more, more, more relative power uh, for liberal democracies around the world relative to uh, these, these, these rising autocratic systems. So that's kind of my, like my starting premise is the system right now may break now, it may break in 10 years, but it, it can't last for my entire life, right? They, ne they never have. They never have. They never have. Right? And I think people sometimes get trapped in this bubble of, of like normalcy bias that like things will always be the way they've always, they, the way they've, uh, have always been. And I can just sort of, you know, ride comfortably into my retirement and the boomers that are running the policy system, that may be true for them. Right. They might think, you know, I got 10 years left, not my problem. Let's not, I don't want to deal with this right now. Can we just keep this party going until I hit retirement or at least till I, you know, uh, shuffle off the moral coil. Um, I think that's a problem, right? It's like the people running policy, don't feel this as urgently as, you know, my generation who like actively sees uh, the problems and knows that we're going to have to live through the consequences. And so I think that's part of the reason why I want to get involved in this is just, okay, self-interest. Like how can I help shape at least those people who are now in those policymaking positions, not making mistakes or just, you know, um, through kind of cognitive inertia or preconception bias, like losing an option that's on the table, um, just sort of leaving it, uh, unused. And so that's my starting premise. Going to this, you know, monetary reordering, um, there's a lot of ways it could shake out. Uh, you know, you, there's more white papers you could write on just what a neo-Bancor would look like, what a new uh, special drawing rights that's turned into a CBDC matrix of, you know, multiple CBDCs all, all in a bundle. What, what would that look like? What would a neo-monetized gold system look like? What would a commodity-backed petro-yuan, you know, look like, right? You could have a lot of these potential new monetary systems, you can have blocks of these different systems. You could have people using versions of whatever they want in different combinations, very, very, very complicated. So just trying to analyze the question of the future world monetary system, if Bitcoin never existed, would be you know, infinitely complex. <laughs> very difficult. If you, could, if you could answer that question, you'd be uh, you know, a multi-billionaire because that's what every hedge fund and bank and president is trying to navigate. Is how is the system going to evolve? How do they position their country to be on the right side, uh, the right side of, that, of that change? So Bitcoin is like a, you know, adds an additional layer of complexity to, to, to analyzing that. Um, why I think it's an asymmetric advantage is because not many people are analyzing it, right? Um, it's usually the things that everyone has already thought of that are priced in. Um, Bitcoin is not priced into that, neo, to, to, to that new geopolitical order. 
And I think it should be. And it sounds crazy to think about it. But if you look at the last you know, 10 years, Bitcoin went from zero to a trillion dollars, right? Going from a trillion dollars to $10 trillion, not crazy, right? Bitcoin doing a 10x is like, you know, every few years, right? <laughs> like, so, but Bitcoin doing a 10x gets it to gold. Now it's a, now it's a reserve asset. Now, now it's actually has the liquidity market depth to play the role that, could, that, that gold could play. It's not crazy to think that Bitcoin could, could get there, you know, this decade. And so if you're making policy now for not just this decade, but for two decades ahead of time, and you're not factoring Bitcoin in, like you're making a strategic mistake, right? You're just, you're, you're missing what could be coming down the pike uh, and either you're positioning for it or you're going to get steamrolled by it. And I think that's kind of the, like my key point. And so it's a strategic advantage in the sense that if the United States can see that coming and can position itself to sort of take advantage of that, of, of that phenomenon, then it can, uh, you know, uh, come out uh, relatively advantage relative to its competitors. Uh, certainly, if gold were to be, say become the new uh, you know, outside money reserve asset for the world system, we sort of retreat to a, you know, <laughs> kind of a 19th century model uh, where you have gold and you have kind of you know commodity trade that's dominated in gold, and you still have fiats potentially, but they're all settled in gold. You know, what's old is new again, kind of thing. I I, I don't think that would be. I think that would be net net better than the current system. It's like, but it maybe this is what the system defaults to if there's nothing else. And it's what, you know, countries like China and Russia, even countries like Iran um, and India and most of the Eurasian bloc are kind of positioning for is hard assets, commodities and gold is kind of being the anchor for a new monetary system as sort of Western fiats collapse. That's kind of their model. And so it's like, okay, great. Well, what is our counterpoint to that model? If gold monetizes, we have some gold, so we wouldn't be like totally screwed. But, uh, you know, China and Russia have a lot of gold. And, and so it would be like relatively... Uh, they would gain more in power uh, than us. And so it'd be a relative rebalancing of power in their favor. Uh, so gold remonetizing, I think there's some, there's some arguments to say that, well, you know, if they stand to gain, that's fine because at least it would reverse this sort of multi-decade deindustrialization. It would enable a new pattern of trade that would allow us to sort of onshore manufacturing, boost the incomes of the 99% versus the 1%. Uh, and after kind of this period of disorder, resettle into a new trade pattern that's like net beneficial to to the average citizen. I, you know, there's certain gold people who think that's uh, that's like a plausible outcome. Uh, I don't necessarily disagree with it. I just think we can do better. <laughs> um, and it just thinks that, you know, people are not are not really analyzing Bitcoin rigorously the way they would analyze these other alternatives uh, uh, as, as rigorously. Um, and Bitcoin, we have the, the at least the plurality, if not the majority of actual Bitcoin. And it's not, and then the key point is it's not actually held by the US government. It's held by private citizens, individuals, you know, companies, custodians. I think the more we have it in individuals' hands, the better. But Bitcoin's monetization, if it goes to this sort of gold-like parity path the next few years, we stand to gain disproportionately uh, from that than any other country. China has kicked them out. So China's not going to gain from that monetization. Uh, most of the countries that are you know, hostile to Bitcoin are not going to gain from that uh, monetization. And if you th- see Bitcoin's sort of inherent values as in alignment with U.S. values, then that, that also strengthens kind of our overall uh, kind of contrast with, with, with this kind of autocratic order uh, that's sort of rising opposition to the, to the traditional, quote-unquote, rules-based uh, liberal international order. Um, so that's why I think it's an asymmetric advantage. I think we have, if we think about it correctly, if we understand where it's going and position ourselves uh, you know, appropriately. So let's shift to the second section of your your paper, and that's focusing on war and national security. 
Before we get into the nitty gritty of that, I'm actually curious, you have a background in philosophy. Mm -hmm. How has that helped shape, if at all, your views on national security and war? Well, I mean, my original background in philosophy was very super abstract, like, you know, theoretical physics and uh, interpretations of quantum mechanics. So utterly disconnected from the human domain. Um, uh, but I, I did I did look at sort of questions of moral philosophy and political philosophy as well. Um, you know, there's uh, a great essay, I think, towards perpetual peace, which also kind of thinks about how, you know, so it's almost like a uh, talks about like a, an original version of the of like the League of Nations or and or like European Union. Uh, in the EU at the time. I, I'm somewhat of a realist when it comes to like the political science school of geopolitics. Um, but I do think, but that has like a moral dimension sometimes. There's just like might makes right and that's okay. <laughs> like I don't I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but I do try to take a more of an analytical approach, which is just what is, what are the structures of power? Don't try to moralize them first because that can color your analytical approach. Just understand interests, understand resources and power, and like just honestly take take that in. Uh, just because it's something you don't like or maybe is inherently unjust doesn't change the fact that it may be true. I think sometimes people just like let what they want to be true affect what actually is true. And so that's like my, my overall approach to just like geopolitics and war is, you know, before you start saying this is bad, he's a bad guy, we should do X. Think about, well, just what is plausible, what is possible, and understand just like the structures of power and constraint that you're living in. Like you can't just snap your fingers and change reality. Uh, so it's like, for me, I come from like the uh, American school of like pragmatism, right? It's like, I, those are like, like Dewey and Pierce are kind of my, my favorite American philosophers. And there it's just, it's sort of inspired by that idea, which is, okay, what's pragmatic? Like what, what is a, what is a useful way of looking at the world? Um, not to sort of abstractly conceptualize and reason, you know, entirely from first principles, which I think is useful. Like in physics, you need to assume a spherical uh, cow or a frictionless plane, and that's that's useful for, for constructing certain kind of theoretical models and then understand features of that model that tell you something about the real world. Uh, but I think in practical contexts, especially like geopolitics and human relations, abstracting too much can get you into problems and can make you construct these, you know, what seem like internally consistent um, political frameworks that just break when they're applied to the real world. <laughs> We've seen that both with like unbridled pure laissez-faire capitalism, which like doesn't, which just ignores, you know, externalities and public goods, um, but also, you know, socialism and communism, which, you know, implies a certain beneficence of human nature that doesn't exist, right? Uh, and I think just you know, you can construct these elaborate, um, I, I, idealized models of human behavior um, that are just not true. And when you try to apply them to the real world, you get uh, pathologies and systems that don't work. And so I'm all about systems that work. I want, I want human societies to like function effectively to enable human flourishing uh, to, to, to whatever extent we can define that. Um, and that means just avoiding extreme edge cases and over-idealizing um, and reasoning entirely from first principles. And that means approaching reality from like a position of humility and, hu and, uh, and, and, and not from hubris and understand, okay, what's, what's possible in the present context? What's a path that we can you know, improve it on the margin, you know, iteratively over time. <laughs> and, and, then, and then explore the possibility space for political economic organization uh, at every step that we think marginally improves overall welfare. Uh, and not necessarily to some you know, idealized teleological end goal that we've defined in advance, 
but just like an exploratory space where we're finding the like the optimal move the, the optimal move at, at, at sort of each point in time. So that's like that's how I approach it. Uh, and so I think Bitcoin is like that. Bitcoin is this dynamic uh, evolving organic social uh, social technology that uh, I think enables that type of exploration. So that's how I kind of think about it. Yeah, there really aren't first principles for human behavior, it would appear. I mean, people think, people have written a lot of them down. Uh, there's a lot of first principles, right? I think that's the problem, right? Uh, the question is, how do you, how do you, how do you motivate uh, reasons to believe in a certain set of first principles over other principles? I think there's right, certain things right. that people intuitively are true and that um, sound right and that maybe, you know, uh, pump certain intuitions that make us feel, yes, this is the essence of human nature. This is the bedrock ground truth for human freedom, quote unquote, whatever. And then, and then anchor your entire political system on that. I think that can be somewhat dangerous, but I also, I also don't want to collapse into relativism, right? Where it's just anything goes, anyone can just do whatever they want. I think that's what the pragmatists really trying to do, which is find that middle path between, you know, not committing ourselves to so much dogmatic absolute truths, right? That that then limit us to explore improvements over time, but also not just throw your hands up and say, we'll never know, there's no truth, anything goes, it's all just chaos. And I think there is that middle ground, but it's difficult, right? Because people want to have either certainties or just the sort of cognitive um, relief of not having to uh, care. Uh, and so it takes work to sort of steer to that pragmatic middle ground. Um, and not get trapped in either direction, right? Um, but that's, I think, the only, I guess, useful way to go forward. So with regard to war and conflict, uh, the United States, uh, among other na nations, has used sanctions as a deterrent. How effective are sanctions? And do you think that efficacy uh, would be compromised by Bitcoin? So in the past, sanctions have not been effective. There's been many studies of this. And even policymakers recognize sanctions, if the objective is to deter behavior, to change another state's or entity's actions, the historical record is that they don't work, right? Like the states are, are not deterred. Those entities do not really change their behavior. Uh, they feel pain and that pain motivates a adaptation, right? It hurts their economy. It, it hurts their, their population. They find, they find some way to at least endure it uh, and find ways around it, depending on how, how extreme they are. Or worst case, retaliate. Yeah, exactly. And often, you know, even the deputy national security advisor currently when he was, um, I think back at the White House in 2014, 2015, when they did the first round of sanctions on Russia, uh, testified to the Senate and said, you know, one goal of U.S. sanctions policy is not to be collective punishment. So as not to stir up sort of nationalism in the target country population that allows the leader to claim he's a martyr uh, and uh, essentially rally the cause against, you know, the, the, the evil, you know, U.S. who's, you know, punishing their entire country. Um, and in cases like Iran, where we, they were the first country we kicked off SWIFT and did this sort of first round of like really, really onerous sanctions to try to constrain their, their, um, their nuclear uh, program. They found ways around that. And even EU, our sort of erstwhile allies, like were like, like directly sort of, Finding easy, finding ways around the sanctions. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, and and even wanted to explore setting up like a dedicated like uh, kind of uh, uh, sort of facility or instrument to to do uh, trade with Iran. And they really uh, chafed at the idea that you that the U.S. was telling European companies who they could and couldn't do business with. Um, and so it's like a tool that's been really powerful, but sometimes backfires in its overuse. And I think even prior to the central Russian central bank uh, blocking sanction. Uh, which was sort of a whole order of magnitude different than what's been done before, there was recognition that 
it's a limited instrument of national power. It mainly functions as a signaling kind of mechanism, right? Like we're going to like let the world know you're bad and we disapprove of what you're doing. Uh, we know it's not itself going to deter or change your behavior, but we're going to like put it on record and make you feel some pain and let the world know that this is a bad thing you did. And to the extent that states need to signal, it's a form of, you know, how states um, uh, interact on the, on the world system. It is part of that game. But it's important people have to understand, not to overplay how valuable it is in materially affecting, you know, uh, uh, an, an antagonistic stakes, um, you know, interest. Now, would Bitcoin help? In, uh, is the question like, would Bitcoin help sort of bypass sanctions? Is that kind of a national security concern? So, so, yeah, thinking about Bitcoin as a way to evade sanctions, I think this has been also a canard that's not exactly borne out in the facts, right? I mean, on the margin, it's possible for some people to evade sanctions using Bitcoin, but it's probably not their first, second, or third choice. <laughs> there are entire shell companies and towers for the lobbyists and accountants in the Cayman Islands and the Bahamas whose sole job is to help rich people not just evade sanctions, but hide their money, tax shelters, like the whole fiat system uh, and its sort of corporate structures that it, that it incentivizes is, is really built to help hide money and to pull money out of countries and route it around in ways that are hard to track. And a public ledger that everyone has a copy of and every transaction on which is broadcast everyone in the network is, a, is not necessarily the most um, you know, obvious way if you wanted to disguise your, your movements of money, right? Uh, people who don't know much about how Bitcoin works think shadow money, invisible behind the scenes. It's like, no, it's like I'm announcing to literally everyone in the world that runs a Bitcoin node, I'm making this transaction. Now, you don't necessarily know that it's me unless you've done some other intelligence to connect that public address to my, my identity. But like that transaction on the network is not, not that hard to see. In fact, it's like needs to be obvious to see and built into everyone's block for it to actually happen. Um, and so I think whereas if you could do like one little behind the scenes shell transaction to a Bahamian front company for, uh, you know, the Cayman Islands front company and you've got directors and, you know, sh- you know it's just like you can you can. You, you much prefer to use that system. Uh, and our system really is wonderful for sanctions evasion and money laundering uh, uh, as it is. <laughs> you could have said, if the world was built on Bitcoin, it'd be very difficult to actually do the scale of money laundering that, that's being done now. There's a lot of people that make a lot of money being those intermediaries. Bitcoin cuts those med- intermediaries out. <laughs> so it wouldn't be as much of an industry uh, in that respect. Um, but yeah, I mean, in a certain sense, you do have to take Bitcoin from a... If you want to use it in the fiat world, you have to take it off the Bitcoin network. You have to... Find someone who's willing to trade with you. And that means you have to find some, you know, OTC desk and maybe a, a third-party jurisdiction that's not necessarily going to have very uh, strict, uh, you know, compliance regimes. Um, you're probably going to pay a hefty premium to do that. That's probably not going to have that much liquidity, so you probably can't do it in very large amounts. Uh, so, yeah, here and there, it's potentially useful uh, on the margin, but uh, it's really not nearly as useful as the existing fiat rails themselves. Uh, and, uh, you know, net, net, I think the U.S. government, you know, has even said this, that, like, it's not a very useful mechanism for sanctions evasion. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it can be used to, to, to transact privately uh, if you know what you're doing. Um, it's really the sort of scale that you would need to evade sanctions. It's just not, not very feasible for, uh, to do it right now. So the meat of the conversation here is, in fact, what type of conflict that Bitcoin might reduce versus what type of conflict it might augment. Since it is a new monetary system, the way that we think about war in conflict changes. So I know that you've penned a lot on this topic. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I run an essay in Bitcoin magazine called The Actual Impact of Bitcoin on War. That was me trying to just 
flesh out some of my ideas here. And again, they're just ideas because I think we're being very speculative or looking uh, into the future, trying to understand the pattern of state relations, forms of violent conflict that could erupt into sort of mass scale violence like war between states and what would be the conditions that would either make that less or more likely, both technological conditions, economic conditions, et cetera. So a very difficult question to answer. Again, one of those questions of like, how does Bitcoin relate to this big strategic geopolitical human concept? It's like, well, Bitcoin is now just adding an additional level of complexity to this massively complex um, uh, issue. So again, I have to like, be humble. Um, I think you look at like overall a few, a few kind of trends and forces that might push in different directions uh, and in different timescales. Um, and also before I do that, I would recommend um, uh, Alex Gladstein has written a great essay in Bitcoin Magazine kind of on a related topic, uh, looking at kind of how quantitative easing and other kind of financial um, uh, obscuring tactics by the U.S. government and other governments uh, to sort of hide the cost of war and be able to make war, uh, you know, a credit card war and be able to engage in you know, warlike and, and violent activities uh, in a way that uh, sort of uh, makes the cost invisible to the public in the, in the, in the short term, at least, uh, and allows them sort of freedom to, to do things they otherwise wouldn't do if they were like actively checked by their population. So he, his essay goes into some detail to look at like democratic peace theory that, you know, de- democracies that have a say in what their government does, like the key link is money. Like we will not authorize you through our representatives to spend our money on that activity. <laughs> if one of those activities is war, you know, the idea is if you, if you make the cost of war uh, hit the voting public, then they will vote only for those wars they feel are worth it in their own interest. And yeah, maybe there would be certain wars of national survival or sort of really strategic ideological conflicts that like, yes, we're going we're gonna to fund this. And then he, he makes the argument, well, you should do that more openly, like have war bonds, like fund it discreetly. We're going to go do this thing that we think we need to do. Do you agree, population? If so, you know, we're going to raise funds to do it. That's like a little, you know, that would have a, a chain of legitimacy to connect, you know, war and 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 uh, other related activities to kind of the consent of the people who are funding it. Um, when you have a debt credit system where we can, you know, do these things like QE and, and uh, have China buy our debt, uh, you know, we can uh, essentially make someone else pay for it. And then our population doesn't have to feel the cost of war. If you reduce the cost of war, you get more of it, right? And so the basic argument, I think, is sound that if you're on a hard money standard, it's harder to pay for wars. Therefore, you get less wars. Same simple, right? Um, the only thing that I, I think about, though, thinking further ahead is, well, yes, there are certain forms of state conflict that are very expensive, that are in our current kind of armed inventory of manned aircraft carriers and big armies, super expensive, as Russia is finding out uh, in in Ukraine, that this is extremely expensive endeavor uh, and can basically bankrupt you in short order. Um, And so the extent that if you're constrained fiscally, those types of wars are probably not, you're going to fight one of those and and then then you'll be done. And so I agree with that, right, as a sort of a high-level thesis. The question is, though, will that actively constrain certain f- other forms of state conflict that, um, that, uh, that could be enabled by technology improvements, that, that, uh, that could be the new pattern of war in the future, right? So we are already moving away from a model of, of war fighting that is premised on this idea of mass mobilization, big manned platforms, and moving more towards uh, remote war, right? AI war, drone war, cyber war, 
synthetic biology war, right? We're, 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 we're technology, the force of technology, as, as, um, as Jeff Booth says, like you get more for less. Well, you get weapons technology that does more for less. And so it's an open question to see how fast that technology will improve, exactly how much the cost will come down, and whether they'll come down enough to make certain forms of violent uh, state activity up to and including, you know, state-on-state war cheap enough to accomplish strategic objectives, right? You go to a war to achieve strategic objectives. So you just fight a war for the sake of it. You think I have have strategic objectives. I can use military force and violence to compel an adversary to change the behavior, to give me a resource, draw a new boundary, change political leadership, you know, ethnically cleanse a certain area, et cetera. So what are those strategic objectives are? If you can use violent means that are enabled by uh, more cost-effective technology platforms, you're going to do it. Um, and so I don't know, it's like an empirical question we don't really know the answer to is how, how much more cheaply will those technologies become? How much more effective will they become relative to their dollar cost? And therefore, would states that are even constrained on the Bitcoin standard, you know, potentially severely, uh, although that's a separate argument, exactly how constrained they would be on a Bitcoin standard, um, but assuming they are pretty constrained, you know, they still might be able to accomplish strategic objectives at the level of war using, uh, you know, these types of technologies that are uh, cheaper um, without necessarily even going to their population for for consent. So that's one thing. But there's also the technologies are not going to go um, not just in the hands of the state, but those technologies are going to become democratized. So you're going to see a proliferation of those types of uh, weapons technologies, forms of violence that uh, are affordable to lots of other people. Right? You can build a essentially what amounts to a cruise missile uh, with with parts you can order on Amazon. Uh, now uh, and with a few YouTube tutorials, put it together. Uh, people, you know, there's groups in, in in Yemen that are doing that right now. Um, so, so yeah, and that's what's happening now. Fast forward ten years, and you've got a postdoc in his basement who you know has a synthetic biology you know kit, right? He can sort of cook up a virus on demand, right? This is where the world is going to be going. The other kind of key piece, I also think people forget, right? <laughs> but it's important we don't forget is we still have nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons aren't going aren't going away. Uh, you know, it would be it would be nice. I would love to live in a world without nuclear weapons. We sort of need to figure out how we're going to survive as a civilization uh, with them. Um, and that that does mean states are going to maintain control over the power to end civilization. <laughs> and I think even in the Bitcoin standard, right? That's that's not going to. Maybe in the long term, we could do this, you know, mass utopia uh, uh, de- denuclearization initiative. Um, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, and so you need to have functioning states to have functioning command and control over these world-ending weapons. It's just, it's a fact of existence. We have, to, we, have, we have to deal with. And the nature of these weapons means that the political systems that, that control them are inherently centralized, right? We have what amounts to a nuclear monarchy where the president or in other countries, the commander-in-chief of those armed forces can unilaterally order the launch of strategic forces, nuclear weapons specifically. Um, now, there's command and control links that often have a two-man rule to validate and authenticate that launch order. Um, and so there's you know, points in that chain from president uh, gives the authorized uh, launch order to you know uh, a silo or a, a nuclear sub uh, launching it. But those chains of command go back to that single, um, what's called the National Command Authority, which is one person, uh, the president or or his uh, or his you know designee uh, if he's incapacitated. And so that system exists now, a system in multiple countries around the world. People think it doesn't exist. People go out their lives as if we don't have nuclear weapons. Um, but I think about like the ultimate form of war, like the most catastrophic form of war that we should be under, that we should understand and think about how Bitcoin would, would affect like nuclear war is, is the ball game. Um, 
And so if you don't think about that, if you don't understand that, you're missing kind of the most important uh, uh, sort of element of that question. Um, and yeah, that's a difficult question, right? Like nuclear weapons and where that goes over the coming you know, decades is, is, a, is a big issue. Uh, I don't have an easy answer for that. So the Ukrainian president recently posted on Twitter a QR code for Bitcoin and crypto donations. Did we just witness Bitcoin democratize the financing of war? That was fascinating. And I think a, a watershed moment that in the broader chaos and, you know, uh, uncertainty of that period was sort of just like popped up there as like a subplot. You're like, whoa, as a Bitcoiner. But there's so much else going on, like Russian invasion, you know, crazy things happening around the world. Was this mean that you kind of it was easy to kind of lose the thread of it. Um, but I think Bitcoiners didn't lose the thread of it. We we're like, well, that marked a change. Um, and certainly a signal, right? That a nation state is, you know, one sees the value of these assets, right? Like they wouldn't want to ask for them if they didn't think they were valuable, which itself is, is a signal marker. And I think Ukraine is up on the top. That it's like maybe four on the list of like most kind of where uh, crypto penetration is the highest. So it doesn't didn't surprise me. Like it wasn't out of left field because I think Ukraine was already had like a digital initiatives or innovation minister who's like that's his whole thing. So that was I think um, made sense in retrospect that it came from Ukraine, but that it came to fund a national government in a time of acute war, a war of sort of national survival, is itself I think a very compelling story. And I think it comes in the backdrop of the fact that you know there were other NGOs that were trying to raise money for similar things that had their like Patreon shut down. And I think this like was a thread that came from like the Canadian truckers of you know having their Patreon and GoFundMe shut down to now like a bunch of NGOs who are like we need to buy night vision goggles and uh, kind of uh, bulletproof vests, not actual weapons, but just military articles. And Patreon said it violated their terms of service. We're going to cancel your account. Um, and I think that's where Bitcoin showed its value. It's like, hey, you can raise money peer to peer from the world uh, in a censorship resistant way. And get that money like immediately. Doesn't have to get cleared through a bunch of counterparty, uh, you know, uh, correspondent banks. That any one of them could hold it up or could be, you know, blocked by one of those countries that happens to have, happens to be routed through. And maybe your own bank, banking system isn't, you know, maybe there's no one at the teller's desk because it just got bombed, right? <laughs> um, so all you need is a functioning internet uh, and you know Twitter account, and you could post this public address and raise money from the world very quickly. And they did like sixty million dollars in like two weeks. Uh, and the other interesting point of that was they were able to actually use, I think, 40% of it uh, to purchase their, their needed um, resources with that asset. So they were able to spend the Bitcoin at a merchant to acquire the goods. So it was Bitcoin being donated, Bitcoin being spent and converted into needed resources by a national government in a time of war. Uh, did not touch the fiat system at all. Right, people held Bitcoin, sent it on the Bitcoin network. A merchant accepted the Bitcoin and gave a good to a national government in a time of war. Like that itself is a remarkable um, chain of events. And <laughs> uh, yeah, I think the implications are potentially profound. Um, you know, what it, both for the good and for the bad. Right? I don't know exactly how it's going to play out. Right? If if other groups try to do this similarly, I think you know this gets back to the other question, right? Which was to what extent can those be censored? Right? By which jurisdictions? Who, who has the power to prevent liquidation of those funds. But the part that's telling was the fact that they're able to exchange the Bitcoin directly for goods, right? And so to prevent that, you would need to like tell them all the potential merchants, 
you can't interact with that address. So imagine it was like a hostile government and the US was like, we don't want you to raise money in Bitcoin. We say that Bitcoin address, no merchant who wants to touch the dollar system can touch that Bitcoin address. Maybe it would make it more difficult, but I think they'd still find a willing buyer for those goods. So that is a, you know, fascinating episode. And I think it's it's going to probably be something we're going to see more of uh, in conflicts in the future. Because additionally, you cannot censor who is going to post that QR code on Twitter and demand money. It could be other mm -hmm. presidents, kings, dictators, authoritarians, terrorists. Anybody could conceivably do it. So do you think there are any other externalities of a global democratized money? I mean, certainly. I mean, that's part of the, that's what you get, right? If you want Bitcoin for everyone, that includes enemies, right? That means, and I think this is the thing where it's easy to, to sort of typecast the easy bad guys and, and then cleave a clean moral distinction between the good people, us, and the bad people, them. And, you know, there are cases in history where that's an easy distinction to make. I'm not being, uh, I don't want to be totally morally relativist, but, you know, different, you know, like one person's freedom fighter is another person's terrorist, right? Um, uh, and, you know, oftentimes in the West, we've supported both sides where we've changed our labels depending on, you know, whether the group suits our interest or not, right? So uh, I think, you know, the Bitcoin is just going to be useful for everyone. Um, there will be road, roadblocks put up in certain jurisdictions to make it more difficult, but not impossible to use. You know, some of those roadblocks could be merited and justified if they're, um, you know, justified publicly and, uh, you know, implemented through an accountable democratic process. And there's due process and just cause and all sort of the rules of law that we agree to in a, in, in a society that agrees that these are rules we would abide by. You know, those are going to be kind of the subset of those larger restrictions that, that could be justified. But I think there's going to be attempts across the board to try to um, limit it in ways that we would say are not justified, right? Funding human rights activists, um, uh, other political dissidents, uh, folks that we think are on the right side, right? And I think just, you know, presumes too much that like I'm in a certain perch and I can draw a clean moral line and say, this is, these are the good people and only they get to use Bitcoin. And I don't think I can. I think Bitcoin will be used by everyone eventually. Um, it's just the, the way it is, right? And just like dollars, right? Like we don't like have trouble at night sleeping because there's a bunch of drug dealers in the world using dollars, right? Like the Mexican drug cartels, the South American drug cartels, they love cash. It's like their whole business is truckloads of cash and finding ways to smuggle it day in, day out. And those are tens of billions of dollars a year operations uh, that get laundered through our banking system. Um, causing massive human massive human costs and you know destruction and social social uh you know instability um will, will i be mad if those people are using bitcoin i mean i'll just be like i'm mad they're drug traffickers right like like just like i'm not mad they're using dollars today right. like i'm mad they're drug trafficking i'm mad that they're murdering people right like that's what i'm mad about right so i think the the point of the social uh you know intervention or the legal intervention is to stop the bad guys doing the bad things um and, and, you know, the, the nature of the money system they're using is, is sort of um, uh, not as important to, to the sort of the, the moral question of, you know, what's the act that they're engaged in. So doing bad things gets me to my final question here on the, this war uh, conflict section. The Byzantine agreement problem or the Byzantine general problem mm -hmm. you define as how to forge stable and enduring consensus among distributed, uncoordinated systems or actors. So this is not just a computer science problem, as the name implies. I'm curious to get your opinion. If broadly adopted, would Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network manifest coordination with its global participants? 
So that is a, yeah, that's a, that's a big, both philosophical, but also kind of practical sociological question. Um, and yeah, so the first point is Bitcoin is a protocol with a structure of endogenous incentives that drives towards a probabilistic solution to the business in general's problem. So it didn't actually solve it deterministically in the sense that like, hey, here's the, here's the, the solution. <laughs> um, it's that the structure of incentives, kind of the game theoretic solution to that system as it's evolving you, with, with individual agents that are responding to the incentives of the, of, of the protocol, uh, allow, those in, uh, allow those participating agents to, to basically generate um, a shared what's, you know, shelling point, right? A belief about other people's beliefs that converges to a stable consensus, right? And then have a protocol that can codify that, right? Using the structure of, of how, you know, the UTXO set and the, and the, the structure of, of, of proof-of-work mining and the rule of proof-of-work, you know, determines the longest chain. And that's the, that's the decision rule that everyone agrees to if they want to have value in the network sustain itself. Um, and so that, you know, think about the structure of incentives, both the technical layer, programming layer, how do we actually design a programming tool that can be an anchor point for human belief, right? And then not just that individual belief, like I trust my node belief, but I trust that other people trust their node. And I know that they trust that I know my node. And it's that sort of iterative web of meta-belief, right? That, that actually is the enduring social consensus, right? Anchored in the protocol's proof-of-work mechanism. And so you got to think about it from that perspective. It's both the social layer and the tech and the technical layer interacting with themselves that generates the social that generates Bitcoin, right? Um, and so you think about, okay, well, how could that extend, right, to other forms of social consensus? It's very difficult to, to do, right? I think that Bitcoin is unique in the sense that what you're what you what you have consensus on is easily verifiable, right? You just go to your node and you say, okay, I got, you know, the right, you know, the UTXO set, boom, okay, the protocol is abiding by these rules. None of those parameters are changed. These are the parameters that I trust. These are the parameters that I know everyone else trusts. These are the, the protocols that we're using. Um, these are the parameters that we all agree to. Uh, so like that layer of trust is what Bitcoin has generated and is, is sort of that enduring incentive to maintain trust in that. Well, not trust in the protocol, but trust in other people's trust, which creates this sort of a shared shared belief. Um, it makes it very difficult to change, right? Like driving over a side of the road, right? Whether you could anchor other forms of like more, I'd say, complex social consensus is, is a difficult question, right? Can Bitcoin be used to resolve disputes over like abortion or school choice? I don't think so, right? <laughs> I don't think Bitcoin itself is going to resolve those things, which are just inherent to human social organization and, you know, very, very complex and not related to the Bitcoin protocol at all. Um, and so I don't see how it could directly, you know, anchor consensus in those, in those respects. In a global system, this is where it gets back to as a neutral reserve asset. Like what a neutral reserve asset is, is that thing, that, that monetary good that everyone will accept and everyone trusts that someone else will accept if they accept it. And so by you know, reaching that level of common agreement on a certain monetary good, playing a certain role and having a certain value that allows you to then do things like global trade, right? And derivatives, right? Because now I can post that Bitcoin as collateral in a, in a certain transaction, in a certain financial uh, interaction. And that financial interaction may have nothing to do with Bitcoin, but now because we all agree that Bitcoin is valuable and Bitcoin has sufficient liquidity in it and volatility, if it converges to a certain level, 
then Bitcoin can be useful as that type of reserve asset collateral, which really is just a matter of a mechanism to enable uh, other forms of, of, of trade, financial engagement, um, which then has geopolitical implications. I mean, states can now hold this asset and know that they can engage in patterns of trade that can be settled with Bitcoin that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And that could have, you know, second and third order effects for, you know, global economic development. So I think it's more through the economic structure and where it could play a role as a reserve asset than necessarily like itself playing a role in adjudicating political disputes, which, you know, are just messy and inherently human. I'm fascinated by the question. And I think it was Dan Tapiero who once said that he sees Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network as a truth machine. And that always stuck with me because I can't help but think that the financialization that we are currently living under uh, not only affects the geopolitics of the world, but also has some type of influence on social consensus mm -hmm. and how we interact with each other. And so then I, I flipped that question in turn with what would a truth machine monetary network do for not only geopolitics, but in turn, how we interact with each other, how, our social consensus, as you said. I don't think that's answerable necessarily, but not fascinating uh, nonetheless to consider. So I appreciate your input. Let's move on to the next section in our last one uh, with regard to energy and, and Bitcoin's influence on that with regard to the, the domestic case for. And my first question for you is, uh, what in fact does energy independence look like when the resources and components needed for uh, renewable energy manufacturing in this case, and specifically solar components, come from other countries, uh, in China in particular? Yes, uh, I think we're, we're waking up to the fact that uh, a lot of economies that maybe thought they could disentangle from the global system have a really hard time when push comes to shove. So Russia's finding out that they have a lot of inherent dependencies that maybe they thought they weren't so vulnerable to. Just like we learned in March 2020 when we needed masks, and we realized we didn't make any masks in the U.S., and so we were uh, relying on China to send us masks. And China said, you can wait in line. Uh, and that was an security problem, because now the U.S. can't distribute you know, needed medical supplies to its population in a pandemic. And so what was maybe like a supply chain niche area, you know, you've optimized your production process, you've outsourced it, you've globalized it because it's cheaper, now it has a national security implication. So you're seeing that with things like PPE. You saw that also, you know, stories are written about, you know, pharmaceutical inputs that are all, you know, made overseas. So, you know, huge, huge numbers of our, you know, drugs that, you know, keep Americans alive and healthy, um, we import, right? Uh, and that's just part of the global system. And so this idea that you're going to become fully like what's called autarkic, right? Meaning like your economy generates its own inputs to run its own machine, economic machine, is I think, is I think a delusion, right? Like, like if we did that, we would have to accept a dramatically different and lower quality of life. We would just, you know, right. we would be going back. Uh, we were going backwards uh, quite a bit. Um, it's possible, you know, wars have a way of, doing that to, to, to societies and civilizations. So I hope we don't go in that direction. Um, and I certainly don't think we should set that at the, as the national objective, right? To be like, you know, entirely autarkic, right? I think just everyone loses, right? You do have benefits from trade. There are gains from trade. Trade is a good thing. Um, it's like, you know, not, it's kind of a bromide, but like fair trade, not free trade, right? It's like, there should be a national interest, you know, 
built into your trade policy. So that's like the first question. And so that's question of energy independence is part is part and parcel of that trade because you import energy, you import energy inputs, you export energy, you generate your own energy. So it's really a really complicated question um, where I would come down on energy independence for the United States really means you know, not reliant on adversaries for like a critical infrastructure input, like energy, right? That if we want to be able to keep our economy functioning, we need to have sufficient amount of energy and sufficient amount of, you know, core resource inputs to the economy so that we don't collapse, right? So that if someone can't flip the switch on us, right? That's the idea. Um, and that's a complicated question, you know, that brings in lots of other things like regions and climate change and, you know, how, what are those competing priorities and how do we optimize across them? But I would say the biggest thing really is, and America's gone come, come, come a long way with this, uh, but we're still we're still not entirely there. Um, and we are still importing Russian oil, right? We're importing Russian diesel uh, at the same time, you know, that we're uh, that we're sanctioning them, right? And we're just now getting to the point where we're gonna, you know, ban them. But it was like, eh, like really, can we really do that? Um, uh, and are we really gonna ban it now? Are we gonna have like a phase-in period? Right. Are we gonna like allow it to be sold to some middleman who we then buy it for, and so we still get it? Right. So when you look under the hood, it's like, OK, well, the, the politicians get a lot out of the, 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 the headline. And then under the hood, there's always some, you know, back end solution that gets made. Right. Um, because no one wants to feel real pain. But that's like maybe a, a tangent. Um, I guess the connection to Bitcoin, which is probably where you're going with energy independence, is it's a key one in the sense that really what you need to drive is domestic energy demand. But I think people confuse energy demand from CO2 from CO2 emissions. Right. So like climate change is a real thing. It's a big problem. It's a strategic problem for the U.S. and the world. And the question is, how do we solve that strategic problem while not, you know, destroying our economies? Right. And, or, or condemning the global south to permanent poverty and not allowing them, them to climb up the ladder of wealth that we were able to climb. Right. There's a moral question and a, and a distributive justice question involved in that, too. Um, and that's a whole nother topic. Right. But I think the core question is, how do you how do you meet those two objectives? How do you expand domestic energy production? Well, you need to increase domestic energy demand. How do you do that in a way that doesn't generate, you know, uh, harmful CO2 emissions? Well, you can do like onerous command and control punishment, right? Like taxes, or you can use incentives, right? You can use the fact that there's a market solution for better forms of energy because it's cheaper, because it's stranded, because it's wasted, because it's otherwise would be having harmful externalities that the market doesn't have a solution to monetize. And so in that respect, Bitcoin mining is emerging on the margin here. I'm not saying it's like a, right now, like a, a, a dramatic force, but I think it's changing so fast that the rate, of, the, the rate of change merits attention and like a sound policy of how Bitcoin mining can, you know, both act as a, as a sponge for stranded and waste energy. So just improving efficiency, uh, you know, re- removing negative pricing, uh, you know, in certain areas of the grid that uh, have other harmful effects on, you know, the kind of the economics of, of the energy generation on that grid. But renewables themselves have, you know, certain generation characteristics that are not great, right? There's a, there's a duck curve mismatch with solar because it doesn't shine at night when you also have high demand, people coming home from work. Wind doesn't always blow. And so you're reducing, you know, we have baseload demand for the grid that we, that we need to sustain. Then you have intermittent renewable generation which creates grid stability problems. Because when you have wide fluctuations in the amount of power being generated on a grid, uh, it creates problems for the grid itself. And this, I won't get too technical, but like the grids try to keep their their frequency about 60 hertz. Uh, And when you have power coming on and off the grid, it can push that frequency out of that control band. 
And they have to do things called demand response where they want to turn off demand off the grid to sort of rebalance the load. Um, but the traditional sources of demand response have been things like uh, pulping or a big manufacturing processes that they can sort of tell, hey, can you shut down? And in four hours, they come off the grid. And then turn back on, well, we have to turn, off to, we have to turn back on tomorrow. So very, very kind of um, uh, a, a big lag. Bitcoin miners can turn like off, but can also scale down in a matter of seconds. And so that's like a dramatically new type of controllable load resource that is now available to grid operators who don't care that it's Bitcoin, right? They're just like, it's some load that I can dial up and down to help me keep this frequency where it needs to be. And the problem is, as you put more renewables on the grid, you you make that problem harder for those grid operators. There's more intermittency that they have to manage. They have to expand battery production, but batteries, again, require a lot of rare earth metals that we don't have coming from, from China and are really expensive uh, and often you know, uh, can't be put you know, in the scale that they need to be placed uh, with the right economics. And so, because they cost, they don't generate anything, right? Bitcoin miners generate revenue, right? And so they, they change the, the ROI, not just, uh, you know, for the grid operators, but for kind of the whole ecosystem of renewable investment uh, and, and, and the grid. So that's like a fascinating topic. It's just beginning to sort of hit that kind of S-curve, I think, especially in Texas and Oklahoma, where you have kind of this wind corridor. And I think you're going to see this dramatic demand kind of organically, but at a strategic level, you know, if we're going to meet our net zero objectives by 2050, we need to basically uh, 10x the amount of flexible load on the grid because we're going to need to increase the amount of renewable generation and increase the amount of um, just total electricity generated, right? Moving to, uh, you know, electric uh, automobiles and electrification of most industrial processes, et cetera. But to do that, you need more, much more electricity. And if you're going to do it in a you know, carbon neutral way, you need more renewables, more renewables, more intermittency, uh, more batteries, more rare earth uh, uh, reliance, but also less ROI, more expensive, higher costs. What you need is a flexible load that has its own ROI built in <laughs> at Bitcoin mining uh, that can be placed geographically kind of agnostic because it just needs an internet connection. Uh, it can even be placed in, in, in places where it's not even grid connected yet. So you can monetize an, an energy resource before it's connected to the grid. Um, and if you were, if we need to actually meet our net zero objects, we need to 10X the amount of that type of flexible load. And I'm just hard pressed to look around and see any form of load that can 10X, you know, uh, in that time, that isn't going to cost an enormous amount on taxpayers. So Bitcoin is actually probably going to 10X on its own without taxpayers, but could be done in a smart way if you actually have the right policies in mind. So that to me is like, right now it's kind of on the margin is Bitcoin mining and the intersection of that with the domestic energy industry, both energy production, um, natural gas flaring, but also just the grid. I think that's going to change dramatically in the next 10 years uh, and become like a big force uh, in, in how the grids are managed and, and sort of just general um, kind of energy production. Uh, and I think it could be done in a way that that actually helps enable our ability to achieve these strategic national objectives for net zero with flexible load and, and um, electrification. So, yeah, I think that's an under, under-examined aspect of this. Uh, some of my colleagues at BPI, Troy Cross, Marco Pius are looking at this, you know, very, very, very deliberatively trying to understand and do some modeling on it. So um, it's an area that I think needs a, you know, a, a sort of special attention. And that's why you've uh, described Bitcoin mining as the holy grail of controllable load and frequency control, correct? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you talk to the folks at the grid, 
Um, I talked to some Bitcoin miners who talked to those, those, and they're like, they don't quite believe it, right? They're like, we sort of described what our ideal controllable load would look like in terms of a bunch of parameters. And it's in my paper, like what those parameters are, like essentially like how fast it can respond, uptime, downtime, intermittency, like, you know, how, how, like, you know, essentially the geographic distribution, all these like performance characteristics, like what are, before Bitcoin existed, before they knew of Bitcoin, like they'd sort of penciled out what the ideal controllable load would have to, to look like. And Bitcoin mining like checks all the boxes and like nothing else really checks all those boxes. Um, so it's almost like you talk to these people, it's like, they don't care that it's Bitcoin. They're just like, it's something in a box that is giving me this, this performance uh, uh, sort of, uh, set and I that's the performance performance that I need. So and it's great, you know, it, it's a win-win. So I think if people think Bitcoin mining is just like the the mental model has already been sort of anchored through media of like burning coal. And there's some bad, you know, there's there are things being burned, you know, that shouldn't be burned uh, to power Bitcoin miners. At least in my opinion, right? Who am I to tell someone they can't um, burn energy uh, if it's for uh, a valuable purpose? But there are externalities that you know, as a society, you could have you know, perspective on trying to, trying to contain. So, and if you have an economic engine here, that's going to drive in a positive direction that you can harness without, you know, resorting to like regulation and economically destructive uh, forms of regulation, then that seems to be the optimal outcome. So if we assume Bitcoin is helping to foster in a new uh, renewable energy renaissance, is Bitcoin the new global oil? I don't think oil is going to go away. Um, in fact, I was listening to some oil analysts who say, you know, oil demand might actually increase. L- Luke Roman calls this peak cheap oil, right? The easy deposits of oil, the, the, the cheap deposits of oil are pretty much already found. What remains are difficult things we need to create more technology for. Uh, but it means energy is going to get more expensive kind of structurally over, over, over time into the, into the next, you know, 10, 20 years. Unless we have a major breakthrough, unless we, you know, finally get fusion to work or find find some new physics, <laughs> which, you know, I'm an old physics person. So I'm like, we need to find new physics because otherwise we're kind of trapped in this this uh, this sort of rut where we're, you know, uh, coasting on on 20th century physics. And, you know, that's where our energy production, you know, is peaked out is, you know, pretty much nuclear tech, which we've had since, you know, the 40s. Um, so we need a breakthrough there if we're really going to move much further this coming century. But in the meantime, we're stuck with, you know, our current energy sources. And mainly it's, um, you know, it's it's fossil fuels. And we're trying to transition to this, uh, to, to, to a renewables future. Uh, but we need kind of another suite of technologies because renewables have a, you know, fundamentally limiting demand pro, uh, sort of, uh, you know, generation profile that says mismatch with demand. Uh, and also doesn't have through the energy capacity factor to power, you know, you know, progressive GDP increases, you know, year over year. So, yeah, if you want to keep the lights on and have just kind of subsistence agriculture, you know, you can have a solar panel. But if you want to have like really high intensity and human flourishing correlates with basically kilowatt hours per capita, um, that number increases means civilization's increasing. So how do we keep energy generation going up while carbon emissions per unit of kilowatt hour going down? Now it's going to require kind of all, all of the above, right? And it means you're going to need capital investment on a large scale. And it means we need capital investment in a, in a smart direction. I think the problem we have with the current fiat system is Capital misallocation is rife. So good ideas and bad ideas are impossible to distinguish, and there's no penalty for bad ideas. And, and that means you're having a huge amount of capital just wasted in projects that are not going to have any material impact on our ability to sort of navigate the sort of future technological transformation we're going to need. And so 
you know, if you shift to a Bitcoin standard or at least a Bitcoin driven capital investment model where bad ideas are not productive and you can't actually monetize or you know go to go to the you know go to the Fed get to get bailed out, you, you're gonna have better technology, right? So I have this I have this belief that if you actually have more productive capital investment in actually um, useful and productive technology, they can actually get to you know that 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 better sort of technological future because you think you, we're gonna need that, right? We're gonna need innovation. I don't know where it's gonna come from. Uh, in the next 10, 20 years, we're going to need to find, you know, new sorts of technology for battery generation, you know, uh, kind of superconductors, uh, you know, nanotechnology. We're going to need to find some key breakthroughs in material science, even basic physics, um, and it needs to be incentivized. And bad ideas have to be sort of discarded. <laughs> and, and in the current system, bad ideas just survive as zombies. And zombie companies are everywhere. And that, that, that essentially um, smothers innovation. It smothers your society. And we don't have the luxury of time. So I think we need to, um, you know, really drive innovation. Uh, and I think Bitcoin is a key enabler of that. Matthew, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, you're invited to my Thanksgiving anytime. <laughs> my last my last question for you is, in fact, what gives you hope? Yeah, I guess I'm sort of cautiously optimistic by nature. Uh, I, I spent all of my careers looking at all the bad things that can happen. I think, you know, you need to be on the lookout for those. Uh, but I think sometimes people can be too uh, doomer. Uh, and honestly, I think part of social media incentivizes that, right? Like you don't get clicks for sort of earnest optimism. You get likes for, you know, world is ending, hair on fire, everything is going to going down the toilet. Um, and sometimes it can look that way, but I think that's because that's what's shown to you. You're not shown the other things. Um, and so that's why, you know, I, I look around, I think I try to mentally discount what I what's shown to me by the algorithms from what reality probably is. And I, and I kind of know reality is, is, is much better than what I'm sort of seeing on the screen and, and, and through the algorithm. Um, and so to that extent, I'm sort of optimistic that, you know, what I'm sort of conditioned to believe is probably worse than what is actually the case. So that's like, you know, net how I discount that. But more generally, I think, you know, we do have um, the fact that Bitcoin hasn't failed is itself a remarkable thing. Uh, and the fact that just in the past like two years, it has undergone such a radical transformation and elevation on, on just the geopolitical, the cultural, the economic stage. It's like, it's hard to see because also Bitcoiners, like we pay attention to every little microscopic news event. And like, you know, each thing is sort of just like a large, like sort of noise around that sort of growing signal. But if you zoom out, you're like, wow, it's like in the scale, like five years ago, no, like this would have been an insane conversation to have, right? Right? Like talking about Bitcoin and you know global. And some people were, and they were like, you know, uh, you know, I think ahead of the curve. But it was in in normal circles, having an executive order talking about digital assets or thinking about Bitcoin mining changing the American industry industry uh, is just was just like an insane proposition a few years ago, right? So this the rate of change, the rate of progress, and just thinking if that even just continues at, at its current pace, let alone accelerates, then I think we could be in for some really you know, dramatically uh, kind of improving outcomes. Uh, so I think that, yeah, like we, we can innovate, we can adapt, we can find, you know, solutions when push comes to shove, right? We usually figure something out. And I think Bitcoin is sort of waiting there for when we're ready um, to sort of help help with that. Um, so I, that, that does kind of give me optimism. So I think it'll be a period of, you know, disorder, but periods of disorder don't last forever, right? They find a new equilibrium, people adapt, they find a new systems that work. Um, and usually, you know, there's pain in that process, but but 
you know, you find a new, you, you reset to a certain extent, and then you can um, build from a different foundation. So I think that's where we're, we're hopefully heading. Um, so I'm excited for that. That's where, you know, I'm trying to, you know, contribute in my small way. Tell the listeners where they can find you in the Bitcoin Policy Institute. Yes. So uh, btcpolicy.org is our website. You know, we're posting some of our initial materials up there. I got my white paper, a few other uh, one-pagers and fact sheets we, that we've put out. So I can sign up for our, our sort of email address, uh, a newsletter, which is, you know, maybe coming uh, in the far future. We'll see. Um, uh, and uh, at Twitter, I'm at Matthew underscore Pines. Uh, so hit me up. Um, happy to uh, DM or just chat. I want to end with something that you have written in this paper uh, that I think beautifully summarizes everything that we've discussed. America stands on its wealth, but stands for freedom. At the heart of our national ethos is a professed commitment to essential human rights like individual liberty, freedom of speech, privacy, and democratic choice. These values, under threat by illiberal and authoritarian states around the world, sit at the center of our strategic interest in promoting liberal democracy and protecting civil societies around the world. Anything, Bitcoin, that helps advance the cause of freedom thus helps advance this core national interest. Matthew Pines, thank you so much for joining me on the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. It was a true pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is great.